Pro Se, a podcast produced by Law360 every seven days. I'm your host, Bill Donahue. Joining me, as always, is my co-host, Alex Lawson. Hey, what's going on? Uh, our other co-host, Amber McKinney, not here. Not here. It is another, I think we're on the third or fourth iteration of Bro Say. We're back. We are. The people were asking, uh, I don't know if that's actually true. People probably weren't asking. No, I don't think anyone prefers it in this um, format. Uh, but yeah, Amber's not here. Uh, we are here. We will do our best uh, to marshal the legal news to you. Uh, I wanted to start with something. Um, there was a thing from, you'll appreciate this as a man who reports on brands and stuff. As sure, I'm sure you yeah. heard uh, Facebook rebranded to all caps Facebook. You see this? No, I, I missed that. Oh, I, yeah. They, I feel like much like Facebook's website, I, I avoid most you, news you about it. Facebook. Yeah, yeah, they're like in the, like official documents and branding and stuff, it's all caps hmm. Facebook. Um, a lot of people make the joke of like people are always yelling on Facebook mm-hmm. and that's like kind of an easy it thing. It also, yeah, it feels like you're like crazy ant writing like yeah. some screed about Trump. Um it, remind, it reminded me of the first time I ever was like – the first like interview I got for a real writing job mm-hmm. was for U.S. News and World Report for their vertical about uh, cars. They did like car reviews. Oh, I thought you meant the film cars. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no. Um, so you had to review cars and like their experiences and stuff or your, your experience driving it. And so the, I, I did a writing test and it was about Hummer. And so I wrote about it. And then they came back and they were like, you know, this is really interesting. Uh, except there is one thing. They're real sticklers about this. Hummer apparently like is very insistent that they always be put in all caps in all writing. Yeah, there's a whole thing with that with uh, with a lot of the like high-end fashion brands. Like they they demand that their like name be written the way that they want it to be. Yeah, which, you know, that, 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 that was an indicator that that, that that job might not be for me. Uh, well, we have a good show ahead. Uh, we have our uh, first-time guest, which is sort of surprising, our uh, environmental law whiz here at Law 361, Carlos Rodriguez, joining us to talk about a big Supreme Court case about the Clean Water Act. Yep. Uh, he's sort of kind of break down the arguments that happened this week. Very interesting case, very interesting chat. Uh, But before then, we have more of a story that we talked about just a few weeks ago about uh, President Trump and his tax returns and and the folks who are trying to see him. We do. Uh, So uh, enormous ruling uh, out of the Second Circuit this week. Um, As you indicated, uh, President Trump's uh, accounting firm was ordered to hand over eight years of his personal and corporate tax returns to New York State prosecutors. Uh, as you mentioned, we did talk about it not that long ago. It has obviously huge implications for the limits of presidential power. And even at this early stage, the ruling came down on Monday. It already seems uh, destined to go to uh, the Supreme Court. Seems like every one of these cases is destined to go to the Supreme Court. Yeah, definitely. Days. But um, so I remember the rough outlines of this. I think it was the case where uh, it, it, ve- it dealt with Trump Shooting a man in the middle of Fifth Avenue. Yes, this yes legal hypothetical. Yeah, and we talked about that. Um, and this is sort of this is not an issue in the case. That was a hypothetical floated by the president himself, as we know. Uh, but yes, um, just there's a million Trump things. Just to be very brief, before we get to the opinion here, this is the case that was brought uh, by Manhattan District Attorney Cy Vance, and it is looking into the hush money payments given to Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal um, in the run up to the 2016 election. Um, in the course of that investigation, Vance issued a subpoena to Trump uh, for Trump's taxes from his accounting firm, which is Mazers USA, uh, and then Trump sued to block those subpoenas from taking effect. That is the active case that we're talking about here. Um, 
the bigger issue is that throughout the case, the administration has argued that the, that the that Trump is immune not only from prosecution, which is laid out in a in a DOJ memo from the Nixon mm-hmm. era, uh, but also even from investigation. So like not even it's like not even prosecuted, but uh, you can't even be poking around here and looking at this stuff. Um, but that argument got dealt a pretty serious blow on Monday. Like I said, the Second Circuit ordered Mazers to hand over these uh, financial documents and. There are a lot of big questions at stake about the scope of presidential power, but the panel did do its best to kind of keep the question as narrowly tailored as possible. Yeah. I'll, I'll explain what I mean. Uh, writing the opinion was uh, former pro se guest, uh, uh, Chief Judge Robert Katzman. Friend of the show. We hope to have him back. Maybe we can talk about this. Um, uh, his sort of nut uh, quote from the opinion was, Presidential immunity does not bar the enforcement of a state grand jury subpoena directing a third party to produce non-privileged material, even when the subject matter under investigation pertains to the president. And part of this was that it's, you know, there was a distinction to be had, right, between the idea of a subpoena, things involving, directly involving the president or involving a third party, as you mentioned in that quote. Yeah, and that's what he's getting at. He said, like, let's be very clear about what is, you know, not, what it is and is not before us. We're talking about, this is a subpoena that is against Mazers, it's not against Trump, and furthermore, it pertains to information um, that that, that precedes Trump's time in office. It's Mm -hmm. eight years of his tax returns before he took office. And he really, Katzman tries to draw a lot of bright lines between, like, what people will inevitably read into it about, you know, what the president, what kinds of legal scrutiny the president can and cannot endure. Um, but it, he, he, he draws a very clear line. Here's another quote. He says, This appeal does not require us to consider whether the president is immune from indictment and prosecution while in office, nor to consider whether the president may lawfully be ordered to produce documents for use in a state criminal proceeding. So he's trying to just sort of say, I am making this rule that this other firm that is a that is a private company can is like should be should hand over documents to a state prosecutor, even though those documents relate to the sitting president. Right. Um, It's funny. I mean, it's the Second Circuit. It's a big, very important court, but it sort of feel it has the vibe of a uh, an intermediary ruling right now, because it does feel like this case is going to go to the Supreme Court. Um, Yeah. Katzman himself said that uh, during the arguments. I mean, when they were when they were arguing over you know they, they were sort of working their way through the case and he made a couple of asides that were like yeah i have a feeling we're not gonna be the last ones to have a word on this or <laughs> I'm, I'm paraphrasing there but yeah trump's lawyers have already said we're gonna file a petition to the supreme court um as we sit here today on thursday we still don't have that um but we will be sort of waiting to see and the thing you'll want to i guess keep your keep attuned for is like sort of how how broadly they ask the question of the of the justices because You know, they can say, like, you know, you can rule on this narrower question that I was just talking about, about, you know, a a state, you know, prosecutor and a third party to a private, you know, thing like that. Mm -hmm. Um, Or you, you know, you know, get to our broader sort of assertion here that we are that we have absolute that the president has absolute immunity from any kind of criminal uh, investigation or inquiry. Yeah. But um, the thing is, like those. Even though those are two things, like they, they are, they are related. You can see it because if you like, if you allow, um, you know, just even this small request of a subpoena of Mazers to go through, you then have at least somewhat dented the idea of absolute immunity. Right. Where it's like they are saying absolute immunity would would shut the subpoena down entirely, and no matter how narrowly you try to draw it, a, a ruling in in Vance's office's favor 
is gonna is gonna nick that up just a little bit. Um, the other reason that this is such a huge deal, even though we're trying to draw these bright lines around, is that there's, as we've talked about often, there's a million different legal proceedings going on relating to trying to get information from the White House about Trump. There's um, there's the House, the various House committees are pursuing legal documents and like. Uh, grand jury documents right. from the Mueller investigation, things like that. And this is the first of these. They are, there are different legal issues at play, but they they deal generally with this issue of, you know, what enables you to look behind the curtain. And this appears to be the first one uh, that's going to get high court consideration. So we'll certainly be watching it closely. For our second story, we're going to stay in the category of federal appellate court rulings. Hell yeah. Pretty fun one. It's a good Jeopardy category. It's it's one of our biggest ones. Yeah, here uh, here, here at Law Three Hundred and Sixty. Yes, uh, a federal appeals court ruled this week that the way that the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office was picking its judges was unconstitutional. Which mm-hmm. I know maybe that doesn't blow everyone's hair back right away, but um, it's a really big deal in the patent world because uh, you know the, these judges that were in play, they are a. It's you know there has been a somewhat divisive de- debate about the uh, you know. The way that that patents are being treated over the last couple of years, that that too many of them have been invalidated. Big companies with mm-hmm. billions of dollars behind it are very animated about this. So this ruling that potentially limits the way that that you know that potentially puts a little oversight over these judges is a very interesting wrinkle. All right, yeah. Well, let's talk about the genesis of the case a little bit. I know a little bit about the PTAB, but let's walk us through. I mean, it's important to know how it came to be so that we can talk about why why the structure of it is so controversial. Yeah. So back in 2011, the uh, Congress updated uh, patent law and they created this new body called the Patent Trial and Appeals Board, which um, it created a new process and obviously a new tribunal for challenging the uh, the decision to have granted a patent to someone. So mm-hmm. if you um, if you know if you're suing me for patent infringement, I can go to this PTAB board and I can say, look, here's X, Y, and Z reasons why this patent shouldn't have been issued. And yeah. it's cheaper than doing that in court. You can do it. You can go out and preemptively do it. So, and according to a lot of critics, it has led to this situation where the PTAB is killing a lot of patents. It's mm-hmm. it's you know, it's doing sort of what it was designed to do and it's been coupled with a few different Supreme Court rulings over the last couple of years that has also called into question what kind of inventions and what kind of innovations can be protected by patent law. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you take them together there is this sort of feeling of there's sort of a siege mentality for um, folks that rely on patents and that, you know, um, there's a sense that 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 the system has been weakened a little bit in mm-hmm. the last, call it a decade, um, and PTAB is a is a really really big part of that. Um, now, as far as the litigation goes, where how did what what happened this week? I mean, it, it, it got started, and we got a, we got obviously a huge ruling this week. Yeah. So on Friday, the um, so last it was Friday of last week, um, the federal circuit, which is the court that hears cases involving yeah. the USPTO. Um, they ruled that the structure itself of the PTAB was unconstitutional. Um, they sided with a company called Arthrex, which is a medical device manufacturer. And they said that um, the way that USPTO was appointing its judges mm-hmm. was in violation of the um, the appointments clause of the U.S. Constitution, which yeah. um, governs how executive officials are, you probably guessed it, appointed. That's right. 
Uh, <laughs> they, it's, it's a really well named clause. Yeah, it's yeah, one yeah. of the it's one straightforward. Of the, it's one of the most properly named clauses in the entire. Uh, Not great branding. No, but, but um, you know whatever. Uh, uh, yeah. So what is that? That that clause deals with appointments. Obviously. So under that clause, yeah. under the appointments clause, there are principal officers who a, a principal officer is you know the person who's in charge of an executive agency. They have real authority, and those people have to be confirmed by the Senate. They yeah. have to be vetted and the, the, the Constitution sets out that they have to be approved by the mm-hmm. Senate. There's also what are known as inferior officers, which um, they don't have to be approved by the Senate, but the flip side is that they don't get nearly as much authority. So Also tough branding, inferior officers. It's tough, yes. Anyway, yes. So what this ruling really said was that the PTAB's judges, the people who are ruling on these patents, mm-hmm. who are saying, I'm going to invalidate your patent. Those people don't have any real oversight. They rule on something, and then it goes to a federal appeals court for an appeal, but their say is pretty much final. Um, it's too much power for someone who wasn't vetted by the Senate or, yeah. Precisely. Mm-hmm. You, that sums it up well. Um, so they're 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 operating as if they were principal officers, but they've never been approved by the Senate, so that's unconstitutional. Yeah. So what, um, what the court did to fix that was kind of a weird solution, but it's a thing they've done in other cases where they... They paired off this other. They struck down this other aspect of the law that provided employment protections for those judges, mm-hmm. and basically by doing that, they empowered the USPTO director to fire the judges for uh, for any reason. For, yeah. they didn't. It doesn't need cause. Mm-hmm. So the idea being that if you create that level of oversight over these judges, they're no longer this sort of unchecked principal officer. Mm-hmm. They are truly an, an inferior officer because what, no matter what they do, the director can fire them for, for anything. Okay. Well, that's an interesting way to thread the needle there. What is it... Um, like you said, this is a big deal to the, you know people who work in patents, people who are trying to get patents, people who are trying to, to deny patents. What is the upshot here? What are we, what are we looking at... With this kind of weird rule, the upshot or perhaps the the subtext maybe is that yeah. you know that in the context of that debate, the current USPTO director is an advocate of of stronger patents and and you know that and maybe moving the the needle back a little bit from where it's been the last few years, where people feel like too many of these things have been struck down. Mm-hmm. So. Um, this gives him a lot more power to to influence the way that that the the judges are ruling. Now, does that mean that he's going to go and purge the PTAB because he doesn't like the way they're ruling? Probably not. But it, you know, Ryan Davis, our patent guy, wrote a really great story where he quoted someone saying that, like, you, you know, no, they're not going to. He's not going to do that. But does it creep into the mind of a judge now that they're no longer mm-hmm. uh, as independent as they were before? That. There is an agenda, or there is say, a. And, and if you know this about the director, that he has this specific proclivity for strengthening. Whatever. Exactly. Yeah. So it 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 raises interesting questions about that, and um, it, it's sort of hard to say. And we will see. Um, I think the immediate next step is this. It was. It, it is a. It's a ruling that that you have to think is going to be uh, appealed on to an en banc court, and then presumably to the Supreme Court to um, you know figure this out. They struck down and sort of lopped off chunks of a of the federal patent statute. So it'll be interesting to see what happens there. It's also a situation where Congress could very easily step in and do yeah. some of this stuff that in the context of a court ruling, it feels weird for the court to be like, well, we're going to fix this by striking down employment protections and yeah, yeah, that's sort weird. of band-aiding this together. Yeah. Congress could step in and fix this instantly. Whether or not they do that is always pretty tough to tell these days.
The U.S. Supreme Court heard arguments this week in a closely watched case about the reach and the limits of federal clean water laws. A Hawaiian county, supported by the Trump administration, wants the court to rule that they can legally dump wastewater deep underground. But environmentalists say that would be a free pass for pollution. Here to discuss the case and the arguments and all the issues at play is Law360's senior environmental law reporter, Juan Carlos Rodriguez. Good afternoon. Happy to have you. Nice to be here. So before we get into the specifics of the case that's at the Supreme Court this week, um, I thought it would be helpful for you to sort of orient us and orient the listeners on, um, we're talking about the the Federal Clean Water Act. Uh, That's the statute at issue in the case. Tell us you know, when was that passed? What does it do? What what specific provisions maybe are we going to be talking about later? Sure. The, the Clean Water Act was passed in 1972, um, one of a bunch of environmental laws that Congress passed in the late 60s and early 70s, along with the Clean Air Act and National Environmental Policy Act. Um, it covers surface waters of the United States, um, specifically the discharge of pollutants to those types of waters. Um, It has traditionally not covered things like groundwater. And it imposes certain obligations on people who are are going to be, you know, putting things into the water. Walk us through what those are and, you know, what what does it say companies need to do? That's right. Uh, So if if an entity wants to, you know, pollute, uh, discharge pollutants into water, they do need to get a uh, permit. There's different kinds of permits that are available under the Clean Water Act, several different kinds. Um, there are permits for uh, discharge of pollutants to surface waters, uh, for different types of projects, um, for drinking water, uh, and there's different standards for the different kinds of permits depending on which types of waters are impacted. And this case that we're talking about here deals with uh, the, the uh, Maui County in Hawaii and sort of the obligations that they have under this law for this, uh, you know, this, uh, what is it? It's like, a, it's like a plant or something that's going out pollutants. How, how do they figure into this in terms of the different, the different requirements? Sure. So Maui County uh, has four injection wells uh, that they use to deposit uh, wastewater from their sewer system. Mm-hmm. So the, the wastewater from the sewer system, it's treated, you know, most partially treated. Uh, they just pump it into these injection wells, which just go into the ground, like I think uh, anywhere up to 180 feet or even more than that. Okay. Uh, so the water from those wells ends up in the pipes, and the pipes just go straight into the ground. Yeah. Uh, from there, it hits... Uh, the earth and and the groundwater that's that's down there and the groundwater carries that wastewater out to the pacific ocean where it could potentially impact uh the beaches and the but, marine, marine environments so the distinction here is that y- they would need this permit to dump the water directly into to dump this wastewater directly into the ocean but what they are saying is that they are putting it into the ground so it doesn't it doesn't implicate the clean water act right that's right uh they do the the wells are permitted um, they're permitted for drinking water safety. Yeah. Sure. Um, so it's supposed to be, you know, healthy um, for humans to draw that water out of the ground to probably treat it again. But there's no consideration for environmental effects. So in this case, environmental groups say Maui needs an additional permit. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, and that permit would cover, would have a dis- different set of standards. Mm-hmm. 
than for the drinking water that would be for protecting coral reefs, beaches, marine life, things like that. So a bunch of environmental groups brought the suit that we're talking about today. Um, the arguments uh, were made this week. Um, what are, you've laid it out a little bit, but I mean, in, in, in broad strokes, what is each side arguing? Sure. So the environmental groups that uh, brought the lawsuit say that that Maui County needs to apply uh, for a, for this second type of permit mm-hmm. that if that would apply towards water that ends up in, in the ocean. Mm-hmm. Uh, they filed their lawsuit in 2012 in Hawaii federal court, um, and the federal district judge there agreed with them, mm-hmm. uh, found that. Under the Clean Water Act, this type of a discharge, even though it passes through groundwater, should be should be subject to one of these special sure. uh, types of permits. So it's a question of like we we put it into the ground, but it ended up in the ocean, and so it's like, did we need the ocean permit? That's like sort of the question here, right? Right. And what does Maui say about it? They just say we put it in the ground. That's a, that's a, that's the end of our obligation as far that's as we're right. concerned. Their interpretation and uh, of the Clean Water Act is that because it just goes from because the wastewater just goes you know, from the plant into the injection well and into the ground, that's the end of the story because the Clean Water Act has never been interpreted to cover groundwater. Uh, so they, they say it's it would simply, uh, you know, there's no jurisdiction under the Clean Water Act for that. And that if, if the environmentalists were to win the case, anyone who deposited anything into the groundwater mm-hmm. that eventually ended up in the ocean would be, would have to get one of these second types of permits, which are very expensive, very burdensome. So this would affect people that have cesspools or septic systems in their homes. I know which um, there are hundreds in Maui. Yeah. So it, and I assume that that on the other end, the environmental groups think that you know if the court sides with with Maui, and I know that the the Trump administration is is in support of of Maui, um, that that there would also be big implications there too. I mean, in terms of going going the other way. Yeah, uh, according to the environmentalists, if if Maui is allowed to to do this, um, and their and their interpretation wins, say a company wants to discharge, you know, some type of wastewater, they could get around getting this second type of permit by building a pipe, you know, even an inch from the ocean. Right. And because there's just an inch of groundwater. Mm-hmm. Then they that would break the chain that's necessary to get uh, this second type of permit, and they wouldn't have to. Um, so it'd be basically be a workaround for for companies to avoid the stricter type of scrutiny. Yeah, that does make sense. Um, the uh, so as I said, the arguments were this week. Uh, I know Jimmy was there. Uh, you were tracking it. You both were kind of all over it. What? Um, how did that go? Um, it's obviously, I mean, you know, climate's at the top of everyone's mind, and this is um, a very interesting case about you know different water standards and things like that. What? Um, what? Uh, what went down? Yeah, it, it is an interesting case, and uh, you know the the justices all seemed to quickly. There was not a lot of uh, trying to figure out what the issues were here. They all <laughs> got it. They recognized there's there's sort of two extremes here. Either companies can build a pipeline up to, you know, an inch of the ocean and, and pollute freely, or, uh, you know, on the other end, homeowners will have to get these 
you know, permits that cost tens of thousands of dollars yeah, or yeah. carry with them tens of thousands of dollars in penalties if they violate it. Um, and so they spent most of their time basically trying to figure out if there was a middle ground here, um, if there's some type of test that they could use um, to figure out, you know. They love those tests. They love constructing <laughs> they're tests. Known, they're known for them. Yes. Yeah, they looked hard, um, and they bounced a lot of ideas off each other and off the um, off the attorneys. Um there were a lot of interesting analogies that I uh, yeah, that yeah. I, I saw in some of the coverage. Yeah, um, they they spent a lot of time looking for creative ways to explain this this problem. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, probably the one that kept coming up the most was uh, uh, the uh, Trump administration's lawyer um, made the analogy that if he was at home and 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 filled up a flask with whiskey from a whiskey bottle and then took the flask to a party. And emptied the flask into a punch bowl. Yeah, uh, you know, no one could say that this whiskey came from the bottle. It came from the flask. Right. So this would be sort of like to say that it doesn't make sense to say that pollution from a plant or something like that that intermingles with groundwater should be considered, you know, responsible for environmental yeah, yeah. damage in the ocean. I only need the easy uh, flask permit. I don't need the entire <laughs> punch bowl permit for uh, this. What? And there were there was there were whiskey related uh, rebuttals, right? Yes. The, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the environmental uh, the uh, attorney for the environmental groups picked up on it and said, you know, Congress's intent was that no whiskey end up in the punch at all, so to speak. So that is something <laughs> that the justices should keep in mind uh, as they as they consider this this question. So we can never get out of a SCOTUS story without asking you to do uh, a tea leaf reading of the arguments themselves. You know, between what the two wings of the court were saying, do you have any indication of how it might uh, of how it might shake out? It was hard to tell because uh, the justices asked a lot of questions, sometimes taking both sides. Um, It was hard to to determine, you know, whether they really felt strongly one way or the other. It seemed like they were looking pretty hard uh, for some type of compromise, uh, some type of test that they could they could impose um, that would be clear to people who may or may not need one of these permits Mm -hmm. and to the agencies or have to uh, give them out. There was a thing between Roberts and Kagan, right? They had like a long colloquy on that. Yeah, there was there was quite a debate, um, you know, getting it. The, J- Roberts and Kagan really got into the to the legal weeds, so to speak, on one of the issues related to the test, mm-hmm. um, and went back and forth with um, r- with Roberts bringing uh, bringing up uh, that it resembled a Agatha Christie yes novel yeah. where twenty people shot a victim in the dark and who's responsible? <laughs> um, and Kagan had uh, come back for that about. Tort law, so uh, it's like we're talking torts here, folks. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's hard to tell. Um, I think that though, uh, if they if they do come down, if if they do come down with some type of test or compromise, uh, I think that environmentalists would probably consider that uh, a victory of some kind because the Clean Water Act has generally been considered not to cover groundwater, and this would allow them to. You know, bring more lawsuits um, and and require government agencies to issue more permits for polluting entities. All right, it's a very interesting case. Juan Carlos, thanks for uh, joining us to talk us through it. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks, man. Thanks.
like to end the show with something offbeat. Um, we're talking about our buddy Roger Stone again. Uh, America's leading Florida man is on trial in uh, Washington. Uh, we may talk about this trial later, I suppose, in a more mm-hmm. detailed way, so we won't get too into the details, but he is uh, facing charges of, charges of obstructing several investigations uh, into 2016 election interference. Uh, the jury was seated earlier this week, and arguments started on Wednesday. And uh, we're going to track how that goes. But something very interesting happened uh, with regard to the sort of pre-trial uh, tussling over what would be admitted into evidence. So mm-hmm. uh, the indictment against Stone came down in January, and one of the sort of more—he's a colorful person. He's been in Just putting it putting it lightly. He'd been in you know in Republican politics circles for you know a couple of decades now. He's got like a huge giant tattoo of Richard of Nixon, Richard on, Nixon his back. on his back, yeah. uh, the Nixon back tat, homie. Tough look. Yeah. Um, but uh, so one of the things that came out of the indictment was that uh, part of the evidence for the obstruction charge was that he, in an email to uh, an unnamed associate of his, uh, 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 um, told that person who was scheduled to give congressional testimony to just go up there and do a Frank Pentangeli. And this is a reference to The Godfather Part Two, right? Uh, where Frank Pentangeli is called to, I believe it's a Senate committee at the end of the movie, to testify against the Corleone family, and he just completely perjures himself. He lies entirely, like straight face to the committee, mm-hmm. and the committee like is completely flummoxed. They have him like dead to rights. They don't understand. Um, and there was some. Now he just says, "Do a Frank Pentangeli in the right. email to the guy," and the DO- DOJ lawyers had asked to show the jury the clip. From The Godfather Part Two, right, and so sort of flesh out the reference. Now, as someone who makes a lot of movie references in everyday conversation, often to the confusion of the many people around me, mm-hmm. one too many Apollo Thirteen references. Yeah. I mean, not for me, no, but not, for society, not for you, for for people out yes, there somewhere. Yes, yes, yes. I really, I just think it's really funny that the federal government is like, uh, it's a sick reference, Your Honor, and we just want to make sure that they understand. What it is, Your Honor? We want to quote it, but we don't know if they would get it. Well, the judge, uh, uh, the judge uh, Amy Berman Jackson, is overseeing the case. Mm-hmm. Um, she said no dice on showing them the clip. She felt that there are too many sort of extraneous factors in the movie that are like different than like just the reference itself that would color. I mean, normally yes, but I mean, he made a very specific reference to well, the Godfather. It's true I mean, to this scene. So they're going to read them, I guess, the transcript of the scene. I don't or yeah. read from the original Mario Puzo, the, the, uh, yeah, the, yeah. The, the, the novel. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So uh, that's what's going to happen there. Um, but yeah, uh, it it's uh, it's just very funny to me to think about like, okay, dim the lights and then the score comes up and it's like, well, now we're, it's like, it's such a, it's a very watchable movie. And I, I, I would see someone, maybe the bailiff or someone being like, can we just, can we just watch, you know, to the end when he's sitting on the park bench <laughs> to when, to when Fredo gets it? Can we just see? It's fine. We've done a lot of trial today. Is there any way that we could just leave this on? Yeah. Also, someone on someone on Twitter, I forget who, pointed out that Frank Pentangeli also kills himself. So maybe he was talking about that. Yeah, that's a tougher uh, angle here. Yeah, I don't know. Offbeat uh, segment. But, but anyway, the guy, uh, uh, the trial is ongoing. Like I say, maybe we'll, re- we'll revisit it, but uh, that's where we are at uh, sort of Roger Stone Cinema Corner. Um, I think it's probably a good place to leave it. That's a good place to leave off, I think. Yeah, okay. Well, we managed to not burn the studio down again. We did not. The studio is still standing. We uh, Thank God for that. 
We have many people to thank, as always, including our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our contributing reporters this week, Kevin Penton and Matt Fair. The music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. Law 360's Pro Se is available on all major podcast platforms, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Google Play, Spotify, anywhere you listen to podcasts. And if you like the show, we would really, really like if you subscribed, left us a good review, and uh, told your friends about it because it really helps other people find Pro Se. If you want to know more about any of the legal developments we've talked about this week, check out our website at law360.com slash podcast. Thanks, and join us again next week.